then complete my joy by having a common purpose and a common love by being one in heart and mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or vanity, but in humility regard each other better than yourselves. Look out for one another's interests and not just for your own. Let your attitude toward one another be governed by you being in union with Messiah Yeshua. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be possessed by force. On the contrary, he emptied himself in that he took the form of a slave by becoming human beings. And when he appeared as a human being, he humbled himself still more by becoming obedient even to death, death on a stake as a criminal. Therefore, God raised him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that in honor of the name given Yeshua, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Adonai, to the glory of God the Father. Um, this is uh, the second in a series of uh, messages on unity. And as I was thinking, reflecting, praying about this, um, the thought that came to mind is if you were to ask somebody, what is unity all about? You will get one of typically a couple of answers. Either unity is a situation where people are not duking each other, you know, fighting and fussing and fuming. Uh, in other words, negative. Or else another negative, which is we all walk together, we all talk the same way, we all lift up our hands the same way. Um, I mentioned last Shabbat a movie called The Giver in which the, the goal for the community was sameness. And so um, I'm here to, to tell you what I hope is obvious, and that is according to the Word of God, Sameness is not God's heart, that he made us different, and that the notion, the, tr the biblical truth of unity is not homogeneity. In other words, God doesn't put us in a blender, and out comes this Gerberized community. Uh, it's unity and diversity. So the question simply is, what does that look like? Uh, I suspect that for every one of us here, we've gone through at least one circumstance, one set of circumstances where we didn't have unity, either in our family situation, in our congregational life, at work. Um, unity is sometimes very elusive, you know? How do you define it? Is it an animal? Is it a vegetable? Is it a mineral? Well... I'm delighted that Scripture gives us some basic 
definitions and examples of what unity looks like. And as I suggested last Shabbat, unity, like everything else in our life, is based on our connection and our relationship with the Lord. In other words, he, he is who He is, and because He is one, He expects us to be united, to be one. And so our unity is based on how He is today, how He lived His life while He was here on the earth. And um, the section that Paula read is a very familiar one. People preach from it, talk from it uh, quite a bit, but um, I wanted to back up a little bit and give you uh, a bit of background on what's happening and why uh, Paul is conveying these thoughts to the believers in Philippi. So a bit of explanation. First of all, the congregation in Philippi was a wonderful congregation. Uh, they really understood what commitment was about, the, the C word. Um, they were faithful. In fact, Paul, in, in later on at, uh, in chapter 4, says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. In the early days of your acquaintance with the good news, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church, not one congregation shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid again and again when I was in need. In other words, Paul is affirming these guys for their faithfulness in supporting him at a time when nobody else did. That's great stuff. Uh, and of course, as you can imagine, there is not a single congregation that is perfect. In fact, uh, let me exercise a little chutzpah here. Uh, the moment you walked into this congregation, it ceased to be perfect. Not that it was perfect to begin with. And the congregation in Philippi certainly wasn't perfect either. There were people who were proclaiming the good news, preaching, because they were jealous of Paul and they wanted to get his glory. Uh, there were actually false teachers, people who were teaching um, a good news that was polluted. In fact, Paul calls them dogs. I mean, that's pretty strong stuff uh, because they tried to manipulate the Philippians who were primarily Gentiles to become Jewish. And then, of course, we have a division between a couple of key women in the congregation. So the point is there are a number of reasons why Paul takes time to talk about unity. So a good place for us to, to realize, to begin with, is that our unity is based on what God has already done. In fact, everything about who we are, what we are about, has to begin with the fact that God has already acted. Yes, he is currently at work, and yes, he will complete the job, but he has already acted. He has done wonderful things. So in the beginning here, he starts out by telling the Philippians 
what some of those things are. The character qualities that God has already put in them um, is a beginning place for their unity. He says in verse 1, If you have any encouragement from being united with Messiah, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, etc., etc. Well, if you know anything about the original language, the Greek there, you know that it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean if, if, it means since. In other words, it begins with the reality that this has already taken place. Since you've been encouraged by being connected to Messiah, you have been comforted by his love, you have been given fellowship with the Spirit, and you have been given tenderness and compassion towards one another. It's part of a package deal. It's a mystery, folks. It's a mystery how God takes individuals from different backgrounds and brings us together. And we at Yeshua Tzion are a good example of a group of folks who are extremely diverse. I mentioned the fact that we have differences of, uh, of age, of gender, of ethnicity, of race, differences of opinion on political issues, and I can go on and on and on. And so somehow, God gives us a heart of compassion and tenderness for one another. Despite the fact that if we chose to divide, we could divide over a thousand different reasons. You know, I, I, I don't agree with you on this, 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 and this. However, we do agree with a couple of basics, and that is our commitment to Yeshua and our commitment to the vision that he's given us. So part of what Paul says to them, you have already been given all of this. Now, let's continue the process. And as Michael pointed out earlier today, unity, in fact, everything that happens in our life is something that is a process that comes about over a period of time. You know, you would like to be able to take a pill and boom, everything would be fine and you would be the perfect spiritual specimen that God has ordained for you. Well, it doesn't work that way. Um, it takes the working of the Spirit of God, and it takes our working. It begins with the unity for a shared vision. Now, again, this is not Jim Jones' kind of cultish behavior, but remember what we saw last Shabbat in chapter 17, Yeshua's prayer, he mentions four different times in John 17 that it is God's plan for his sons and daughters to be one, to be united. And in Scripture, if you have things repeated more than once, it is designed to get your attention, as if to say, okay, I said it once, I said, I'm saying it again, did you hear what I just had to say? And furthermore... In case you were, your thoughts were in China somewhere, let me say it one more time. God wants you, his disciples, what Yeshua is saying, to be one. 
And so here it's not surprising that Paul, continuing in Yeshua's footsteps, is saying the same thing. He states in four different ways our need to be one. Verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And the word for mind there appears a couple of times, but it basically all has the same notion of the need to recognize that we are not merely individuals. And folks, this is tough stuff. Think about it. What does our culture say to us? Our culture, the spirit of the age today, glorifies the individual. You know, you've heard the shtick of uh, what's right for me is right for me, what's right for you is right for you, etc., ad infinitum, ad nauseum. And so it's very hard for us because we don't see that modeled in the larger culture, and frankly, we don't often see it modeled among fellow believers. We don't really understand what unity is all about. And yet, the Word of God commands us, but, and it's very clear, this is a command. It is not uh, an invitation to consider it. And Well, you know, I'm, uh, if, I'm, if I'm in a good place, then yes, I will pursue unity. No, this is a command. This is instruction that is expected to be followed and obeyed. And that is, as Michael also mentioned earlier, why we devote so much attention to the membership process because it is an opportunity for folks who have come, who are new to us, to consider our vision, not just our vision, but the vision that God has given us. And by the way, if it is a vision from God, it is impossible. So our invitation is simply for you to join in in this adventure of what God wants to do here among us and simply ask God to show you how you fit in this. Because if he brought you here, then he has a purpose and a niche of nurture where you are built up and he has a niche of service where you can give from what God has given you. Amen. Remember, it's not just me, I need to, to receive, I need to get, I need to be fed, but rather it is also how I need to serve because otherwise we are like a pond that has no outlet that becomes stagnant. And I see that very vividly in my mind because where we live, there is a fairly significant pond and every so often it gets dammed up and um, it is not particularly fragrant. Well, it is uh, malfragrant, malodorous. I don't think any of us want to be malodorous. God gives us, and, and it's normal and proper for us then to learn to give from, from what he's given us. That's part of unity. It's the notion that this is not just me, that when I come here, I don't just look at me and say, okay, uh, I'm here to worship God, and I'm really basically oblivious and completely tuned out to who is on my right and who is on my left. And that as soon as services are over, I'm done. 
Uh, I've got lunch, I've got plans, I have things to do, and I'm frankly not particularly interested in making connection with him, her, etc., because this is really all about me. I know I may have crossed the line from preaching to meddling here, but (laughs) the truth is, we're fellow strugglers. Unity is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something that we grow into, and we make a commitment towards that. We point our noses in that direction, and we anticipate that, that the Spirit of God would work in our insides to change us and to give us instruction on what this unity thing is supposed to look like. So here Paul talks about the unity of mind, heart, and vision. Um, Simply, I believe it means that we learn to pull together. We learn to pull together. You've heard that scripture in, in 1 Corinthians talks about don't be unequally yoked, which simply means that in those days, um, uh, the... um, Animals were, were yoked, were put together when they would uh, perform different tasks. So you had to have two animals of the same kind pulling in the same direction. So you can imagine if you had a, uh, a cow and an oxen yoked together, it would uh, prove to be somewhat problematic. So in verse 3, Paul tells us that we are not to do anything out of selfish ambition. And I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in a a paraphrase called The Message. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Now, I know none of us struggles with that, with the feeling of resentment and jealousy and so on and so forth, but the truth is, um, we were born self-consumed. Think about it. Um, When a baby is born, do they, and as soon as they learn to talk, do they say, uh, Mom, Dad, is there something I can do to help you out? I know you're having a rough day today. Uh, Would you please share your innermost thoughts with me so that I would be able to uh, ooh and ah and coo and ka over you more fully? We're born that way. That's survival instinct. And so the notion of looking to help others is not something that comes naturally to us. Instead, we are sometimes obsessed with our rights. You know, you stepped on my toes. Who gave you the permission to do that? I'm going to see to it that you understand fully that you offended me and you're going to understand it in bright, vivid colors. It's difficult, isn't it? Or I should say it's impossible. Verse 3, Paul continues the same vein. In humility, 
which literally means a lowliness of mind, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the, the interests of others. This is some practicalities here of what unity looks like. In other words, you're not just concerned for your business, you're concerned about the needs and the concerns of somebody else who is part of your congregational mishpacha. You consider them to be of, of exceptional value. In other words, you look at them and you say, Lord, I want to see you do good things in him or her. And you invest yourself, you, you look and you pay attention. And over a period of time, God opens you, your eyes and shows you where other folks are, not so that you can be high and mighty or so that you can sit and invite them to receive your profound words of counseling, um, but that you learn to serve in any way God shows you so that they are encouraged and built up and strengthened and encouraged. There's a great deal of fear that's associated with that because we assume that if I put other people first, then I'm going to get squished and my interest will be not paid attention to. In other words, I will be... I will end up on the short end of the stick. That doesn't say much for who God is because if we follow his pattern and his instruction for how we live our life, will God not see to it that we are rewarded? Remember a very basic scriptural principle that we find all the way in the Torah, and that is that there is blessing and obedience. As we commit to following the principles, the guidelines that God gives us, we can expect his blessing. Including learning to walk and live in a humble state of mind. James puts it this way, he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes to the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, that means... Two things. The negative is God is personally opposed to those who are arrogant and are full of themselves. So when you look at someone who is puffed up and full of themselves, don't be concerned. They're God's problem. Lord knows in 25 years of ministry, I see all kinds of folks, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sometimes people... Um, perhaps mean well, but, but it's all about them. And, and at some point, you can either get sucked into that or s you can step back and say, Lord, you've given me enough stuff to do. I'm going to focus on what you put before me on my plate. I'm going to mind my own business. Where he or she is, is your problem. So God is personally opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? It means simply that as we endeavor to walk, to live in humility, 
we know that we have God smile upon us because that's a character trait that he values. And part of that, of course, is, is the love that Paul talks about earlier and you see throughout Scripture. Um, and that is the commandment to love deeply. Now, what does that mean, to love deeply? Is this one of these things that you have to send a, uh, a spacecraft to Mars in order to capture what it really means? No. Um, love one another from the heart. Well, that means that it's not superficial. You know, it's so easy to come, give somebody a hug and say, Hi, I love you, blah, 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 blah. And the other person just pours out their heart and, and is telling you about how they're uh, feeling broken up and you just continue to say, yeah, I love you. Easy to do that. Peter tells us later on in, in chapter 4, the first epistle, love each other. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And folks, where you have a bunch of people, guaranteed there will be sins because each one of us is a sinner. And uh, sometimes when folks come to Yeshua Tzion and they say, wow, this is a great place. I love the worship. I love the teaching. I love the fellowship. I've never seen any place like this. I've been waiting for this for a long time, etc., etc. My inclination is to say to them, be prepared to have someone step on your bunions. Not great and um, wonderful way to um, um, promote growth and so on, but it's reality. Reality is, and we'll, t we'll be speaking about the bunion stepping in the next uh, couple of weeks, interrupted by, mercifully, by... Um, Bill Bjorrucker is coming here on February 7th. But love covers a multitude of sins. The Lord's kind of love, folks, is real. Which means you learn to see each other's faults, each other's warts, and you don't turn against them. You continue to love them because the Lord gives you the ability to do that. And then you pray for them and do what the Lord shows you to do to care and encourage them. Amen. Not to fix them, but to encourage them. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's part of unity, folks. Somehow the Lord gives us the ability to care. So unity, first of all, models who God is. Unity is based on God's instruction. The fact that we're given clear and unambiguous command from God to learn and to pursue unity. Yes, it is, as we'll see in a moment, God does the heavy lifting, but he requires that we engage in doing that and being co-participants. As you read scripture, particularly in, in the New Testament, in New Covenant, you'll see that there is a ton of words that have to do with together or with one another. It, those words appear over 100 times in the letters alone, in the epistles alone. 
obviously meaning that they're designed to get our attention. Let me just rattle through a number of these statements. In Ephesians 2.21, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, God takes each of us as individuals and somehow shapes us and fashions us into a building where he can hang out. Now, that obviously means that my rough edges are going to rub off on Rabbi David's rough edges, and somehow the Lord is going to be able to make us fit. And that's true for all of us who have been called to be part of this spiritual mishpacha. Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 15, accept one another just as Messiah has accepted you. In other words, God loves you despite all your stuff. We're to do likewise. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate one for another, forgiving each other just as God, in, in Messiah, God has forgiven you. Galatians 6.2, carry, carry each other's burdens. You know, there are times when we are overwhelmed by life circumstances and it does wonders to you when a brother or sister comes alongside and encourages you and helps with the burden. They're not God. They can't fix anything, but they can encourage you. And I can go on and on and on and on. So these are the instructions we've been given. We also have the model. As Paula read to us, Yeshua came and he could have strutted around and said, I am the Son of God. I'm the Creator. I expect you to bow down to me and take care of my needs. No, he came to serve. He came to serve. He made himself nothing. In other words, he emptied himself. And frankly, folks, exactly what that means, we'll know when we see the Lord. That's one of these mysteries. But it simply means that he could have demanded his rights as God here on the earth as he was walking, but he chose to be a servant. Now, I can't understand that. And um, the, the closest example that comes to mind is that of um, Peter the Great. I don't know if you are familiar with Russian history. I'm a history buff. And um, <coughs> Peter the Great, the Russian Tsar, looked on his people and saw that they were a mess. Russia was ex exceptionally backwards. And so he determined that he wanted to bring about change. And so he traveled as an ordinary worker for a number of years, learning how to build ships and do all kinds of things. And he came back to Russia, and he began a campaign to modernize Russia. Now, Yeshua was not Peter the Great, obviously, but that's somewhat of an example of what Yeshua did, and I wanted to read to you from, again, from the message uh, by Eugene Peterson, translating verses 6 to 8 here in Philippians. 
Yeshua had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. In other words, Yeshua lived selflessly. Not selfishly, but selflessly. That's part of the humbling process. How do we live selflessly, folks? Part of that assumes that we understand that God will take care of us if we take care of His business. That we don't have to scratch and claw in order to see to it that we're taken care of, but somehow God will see to it as we follow His instructions, He will see to it that we don't come in the short end of the stick. We follow Yeshua's example that in lots of ways is impossible but we simply say, Lord, I want to follow your example. I'm not the brightest bulb in the universe. It's okay, you know me, you understand me. But I want to point my nose in that direction. Would you please show me what that looks like? What does it look like to follow Yeshua's example, to take on Yeshua's kind of mind? We either do that because we trust or we are afraid and we say, no, I have to look out for myself. Yes, we can do that. And we can live lives that are based on fear, what will happen to me, or we can live lives that are based on basic trust in who God is, in His commitment to me, to us as individuals, and we learn to grow in that. Finally, I also wanted to point out that unity, as I mentioned earlier, is something that grows. It's a long-haul proposition. And like anything else in our relationship with God, it has both God part and me part. God is working and I have to work. I want to begin, first of all, in, in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or again, as the, the message puts it this way, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. Now, I don't know what this does for you, frankly, it leaves me somewhat exhausted in thinking about that and frankly somewhat depressed. Maybe, maybe you're the person who says, I'm going to keep it up. I'm going to redouble my efforts. I'm going to be energetic in the life of salvation. Well, I take off my yarmulke to you if you can do that. I would say for most of us, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. And looking at that, just by itself is depressing because there's every part in us that, that says following the Lord is hard. Following the Lord is impossible. And you make choices to bail. However, however, there's a second part. 
The second part in verse 13 gives us the balance and the perspective. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Again, the, the message, the, the paraphrase, it is the energy is God's energy, an energy deep, deep within you. God himself is willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Now think about that. It's not the case of either or. Either God does it or I do it. It's both and, a very Jewish kind of proposition. God is the one who is working, who's doing the heavy lifting in us. He's kind of, the spirit of God is, is propelling us, moving us towards having greater unity. And then we respond. We respond as God enables us and, and we say, Lord, you're right. Of course you're right. You're God. Um, and we pursue that and do whatever it is that God makes, makes it possible for us to do. And so as time goes on, our character becomes more like God's character. Our vision becomes more like God's vision. We're brought together closer and closer in our thoughts and our ideas. We become more and more like God. And perhaps we start out with being driven by experiences, being driven by our pain, being driven by bad relations that we've had with people and feeling like I have to protect myself, I have to put a wall and being somewhat skeptical, cynical, perhaps. And at some point, God gets a hold of you and says, hello, who is in charge here? Who is in charge here? Are you the one who has to, f to fix and manage and coordinate everything? I know people who feel that way, and I feel sorry for them because they have to control and manage everything, which frankly leaves a person exhausted. But if you understand that God is in control, that he is working, then at some point you learn to relinquish the death grip that you have on circumstances and say, God, I want to work with you. You have a good plan. You want to bring me together into unity with other folks who are part of my mishpacha, and that's going to be a blessing because it is your command, and when I obey you, there is blessing and obedience. And then you watch God working. So unity is an impossible dream if it all has to hang on us. But if we understand that unity is based on who God is, He is one, that He has given us instructions over and over and over again in the Word of God, expecting us to become one, and that he has given us explanations of what the unity is supposed to look like, both negatively and positively. And even more, he gives us the power 
inside to change and move in that direction. Then we have a choice. We can either say, yes, Lord, of course you're right, or else we can be stupid, which we get that way from time to time, and, and uh, harden our position, stiffen our neck and so on, and say, they're awful, they'll never change. Um, I don't want to be anywhere near them. Um, I'm going to protect myself, etc., etc. In which case, God Almighty cares for you and he says, okay, you're not getting it. Let's take you around the block several more times. The scenic route. Maybe, maybe after 40 years in the desert, you'll finally get it. And then we do. And we are empowered to move in that direction. And remember, folks, I just want to close with this. As you read Scripture, particularly the book of Acts, you see that when God did amazing things, when he poured out his spirit, when, when great stuff was being done, you always, 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 always have the connection that the, the believers were together in one heart, one mind. You never have God acting, doing great stuff to touch people if there's division. God, first of all, has to work on the hearts to bring people together. That's where we want to go, folks. We want to become one in heart and mind and purpose and vision like the Lord is one because we know he has awesome plans for us individually and as a mishpacha, as a congregation. We want to see that happen. Let's pray. Lord God, you know all things. And you know, Lord God, how sensitive and touchy this area is for, for all of us. And Lord, we want to honor you. We want to honor you in our commitment to hear and to follow the instructions you give us in your word. In this challenging area, I pray for each one of us, Lord God, where, where we struggle, where we have a tough time. We pray, Lord God, that you, your spirit would speak to us, give us, Lord God, the necessary discernment, Lord, to get it. Give us, Lord God, these soft hearts then to take what you show us and apply it and receive the blessing that you have that comes because we obey you. We pray, Lord God, for that transformation in us individually, for that transformation in us as a mishpacha, Lord God, that we would become one and that your wonders, your niflaot would take place in us and through us. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.